0: All right, gentlemen, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us for Risk Assessment. Uh, Some of you are stepping out in faith. You have no idea what that title means when you saw it on the uh, original Shepherds Conference. Uh, They were supposed to uh, include the rest of the title. Maybe you've gotten that by now, but we're talking about threats uh, or threatening trends within evangelical missions. So uh, if that's what you're interested in hearing about, you're in the right place. If not, you've got time to run out the back door and uh, find another seminar. But uh, My name is Mark Tatlock, and uh, it's my joy to be with you this afternoon. I serve with the Master's Academy International, and it's great to see a number of friends in the room. I'm just curious, uh, uh, we held a little bit of a pre-conference on the subject of aligning your local uh, church's missions program with biblical priorities. How many of you were able to join us? So a few of you, Okay. I may repeat just a couple things there uh, that were said. I hope you don't mind. But um, our subject matter today is absolutely essential. And uh, if you were with us this morning uh, with Paul Washer, you got a little bit of a sense from Paul uh, with regard to some of the very concerning issues that are occurring within evangelical missions today. And uh, I've had an opportunity, uh, frankly, the last two years that I've been serving with TMAI to Uh, visit a number of churches, be a part of their missions conferences, and I always ask if I can sit down and spend time with their missions committee or their missions team uh, just to get acquainted learn what they're doing. And uh, I'm talking about being in in churches that are pastored by uh, TMS grads. So these are good churches, solid churches. But I've yet to have the experience where the pastor uh, says to me privately, uh, we got some challenges in our missions program. And um, what I've learned by just getting out on the road and spending more time uh, is just validated what, what I thought was the case. Uh, we, very, we have a very limited uh, measure of expertise and knowledge within our local churches as to the reality of what's transpiring uh, in the bigger missions community. And uh, many pastors often don't feel equipped to lead their missions programs, so they delegate that. Sometimes they have a very competent missions pastor. Uh, But even sometimes missions pastors, as well intended as they are, really are not schooled uh, in the issues that uh, missionaries are facing on the field with regard to these trends and philosophical issues. And uh, I believe that it is a great uh, responsibility and stewardship that we have to equip and train uh, people in our churches and send them to the field. But it means that we need to uh, raise the level of the missions intelligence or IQ of our pastors and elders and missions leaders, so uh, that you can fulfill your responsibility to shepherd and care and counsel uh, those prospective missionary (coughs) candidates, and then certainly once they get to the field. So I just want to serve you today. It's really not my intention to to create alarm, um, but I do want to highlight uh, 10 trends uh, in evangelical missions. You have a handout there, you can see what they are. Uh, I'm just going to give a simple explanation of both. It's not uh, my desire for the sake of time to drill down and give you an entire uh, three-unit course on every one of these uh, topics, but I hope what we do here is better equip you to ask smart questions, Uh, and and even more importantly, uh, help your missionary candidates ask smart questions. That's your job, to shepherd and counsel and and lead them uh, in the missions enterprise and I think uh, if you take on that responsibility uh, to be faithful and effective and informed, uh, then you'll you'll frankly um, love your people. Uh, you'll save them a lot of heartache, a lot of confusion. That's unnecessary because we didn't do our job. So uh, my desire simply is to serve you. Um, uh, I want to also uh, tempt you a little bit in a good sense uh, to become a better student of missions, missiology, a theology of missions. Uh, I really believe that we, it's time that we s- focus on, on creating a, a theological approach to missions. Um, there's a lot of sound churches, but if they knew what was going on uh, on behalf of their missionaries or through their missionaries or the mission agencies their missionaries serve with, uh, you'd be very alarmed by the disconnect. Uh, with regard to even theological premises, uh, with regard to their strategies and what they're doing. So I'm hoping in the years to come uh, that the Lord will use all of us uh, uh, to really be corrective um, and doing that with real wisdom and prayer and grace and love, but intentionality uh, and without apology. So that's my motivation in coming to you uh, today. So let's jump right in, and uh, if there's time at the end, we'll take some questions. Um, But I hope that this is beneficial to you. Number one, international theological education. You might look at the Master's Academy International, uh, for instance, and say, oh, there's a need to build seminaries around the world. Well, you need to know there are seminaries around the world. There's a lot of seminaries. Seminaries that were established by very faithful Uh, theologically sound conservative mission agencies and mission organizations going back 50, 60, even 70 years ago. It's not that seminaries don't exist. It's the state of seminaries on the mission field that have the same commitment we have to train national pastors. And let me just kind of illustrate some of the concerns. Uh, I remember sitting up late one night with a group of Ugandan pastors in their dormitory after we were training them how to do Bible study methods. And I just asked them the question. I said, well, tell me about your uh, training, because they'd shared earlier with me that they're all required to complete two years of seminary training to be a pastor. I said, well, that's great news. You've got some training under your belt. Tell me about that. And when they begin to describe the courses that that they had uh, had at their seminary, all of them, were focused on practical matters of church administration, logistics, uh, and things of this nature. No theological training, no training in interpreting, interpreting the scriptures. And um, these men were hungry. They loved Christ. They wanted to be faithful to their flocks, but they had not been served up uh, the kind of training that they needed to be effective in their role as pastors and shepherds. Now, it's one thing to train people in the practical matters of ministry, and there's a place for that. But the greater concern, what we're seeing uh, around the world is this. Most historic seminaries, again, founded by conservatively strong uh, mission agencies or even missionaries, have sent their very best to the U.S. to be trained. Okay? And I'm talking, if you go back and look at what's happened in the last 30 years, <clears throat> There were schools, and I don't apologize for this, but schools like Fuller Seminary, who at one point, uh, the most conservative school at Fuller was their School of World Missions. But in the last 30 years, uh, that's declined like their other schools have uh, and do not hold to a high view of Scripture and inerrancy and so forth, uh, embracing all kinds of of, uh, hyper-contextualization, which we'll mention in a moment not just Fuller, but many other schools. And these schools, with their graduate degrees and missions, have had the greatest influence in, in shaping uh, the direction and strategies of missiology uh, over the last three decades. But these schools particularly uh, saw the opportunity to equip and train uh, national leaders, and they became very aggressive in scholarshiping international students to come back and be trained at their schools. Okay, Now, you're overseas. Uh, and a school, a prestigious school, offers you a full scholarship to come and be trained, you're going to take them up on their offer. You don't have the framework of discernment to know if that's a good place to go or not, and so you take them up on their offer only to come and be exposed to the things that we're talking about even this week uh, in the other sessions, the things that ultimately lead to compromise and to error. So the world has sent their very best to be trained at these kinds of schools, only to have them return, to not become men of conviction, and uh, embracing the pragmatism and everything else that was informing and has informed Western missiology uh, for the last three decades, and then go back in positions of leadership because they're the most trained. They're the ones with the credentials and the degrees uh, to take on roles of leadership as academic deans, presidents, and so forth of these schools, that began to crack the door open, and over time, you know, bringing their former faculty member from their uh, their alma maters to come and teach and to train and so forth, has led to uh, a pretty significant erosion uh, in doctrinal fidelity uh, at these at these schools. Uh, you can ask any of our guys who are training, uh, they're in context where there's at least four or five other seminaries or or training programs. So the point is, it's not that they don't exist. The point is that they no longer stand for the truth. Now, we've been pumping out graduates of those schools on the mission field for the last 30 years as well. And so the men who are in uh, leadership, uh, in their denominations and so forth. You know, it's one thing when they were 25 years old, went and got their seminary education and pastored, you know, a rural village church. But over the years, okay, as they get older, like in any circumstance, they begin to take on uh, the roles of leadership and responsibility. And sadly, these men who were not trained uh, to stand for the truth opened up the door then uh, for pragmatism uh, uh, in their missions practices at large, church planting, uh, and so forth. So that's the state of international theological education today. We certainly, uh, through TMI, want to provide a corrective uh, to that and a, and a better and more sound alternative, and we're grateful uh, to have the chance to do that. But it brings us absolutely no joy to see uh, the state of these schools. Uh, one of the things that we hope to do is there are some historic seminaries that uh, there are still good faculty members there. It's not everybody on the faculty or everybody in the leadership has abandoned conservative doctrine. So one of the initiatives we have is to reach out and and to try to identify schools uh, and and individual faculty members and invite them into the the fellowship. They're not members of TMAI, but we want to to put our our finger. Uh, you know, in the, in the dam and try to stop the flow. And if we can have an influence for good, then we want to do that as well. So it's not that we're here just to condemn those schools. We want to be proactive. We want to engage those men. And we want to stand with those faculty members who are trying to take a stance within those schools. But this is what we've been exporting now, and now we have to deal with the realities. And so you need to understand how that then has penetrated the broader uh, missions world uh, around the world. Uh, so... I just wanted to name that first of all, again, we're, we're focused on, on providing an alternative. There are others who are committed to pastoral training. I've talked to many men this week who have been traveling overseas or part of a mission agency that sees the need to train pastors. And I'm grateful for that. And so we need to lock arms. We need to be committed and we need to do everything we can, uh, to really a reform movement and missions in our generation. So, um, that's number one, the state of international theological uh, education. By the way, I just, I just think about challenges, um, and I'm curious to understand these things. What are the historic influences? This didn't happen overnight, okay? And we can learn those lessons to observe the subtle shifts in practice that we might even be prone to make and to accommodate that would eventually lead 5, 10, 15 years down the road uh, to uh, more accommodation uh, which would be of greater concern. But the other thing is, I like to look at what the structural issues are and find the solutions, okay? It's easy to be a critic, but if we're going to find solutions, then we've got to define the problem, we've got to find the structural uh, causes of those, and we need to, to strike there. Uh, and in this sense, what I'm trying to illustrate is the historic and the structural uh, reasons that led to the decline of, of uh, international theological education, all right, um, and these complement each other, uh, not always in a good sense, but the second trend that you need to know about is the emphasis on indigenization. Indigenization. As we see here, while there are positive elements to this principle, most denominational leaders have been educated in the West by Americans and British schools, which have abandoned biblical convictions. And this is what I was pointing to earlier. Um, <clears throat> In the effort to train nationals, uh, we begin to scholarship them heavily to bring them here. Now, in the early days, many of them didn't go home. If you're from a developing country and you come to the United States and, and you got a lot of money being put in front of you to pay your school bill and, and people, you know, this is the well-intended but um, tragic uh, effect of, of not working smart in mission. So we brought a lot of the best leaders over early and they never went home. Now, if they were educated at liberal seminaries, I guess that's a good thing. They didn't go back. But even in our experience, we had to learn how to provide accountability and support and and work with national churches to make sure that men who did come here and were trained uh, did go back home. Um, So the focus on indigenization is the right thing. I think we've argued even this morning, if you are with us with Paul, that that's the biblical emphasis I think of the occasion that Titus uh, was sent by Paul to Crete, and what was he instructed to do? To raise up elders, right, to train them. Again, as Paul said, the fulfillment of the Great Commission is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, teaching uh, the next generation uh, to teach and to preach and to live a life of faith and obedience. And so this is what Christ has called us to. We see that uh, in Paul's ministry. We see it in the book of Titus, for instance, And uh, I love that story. It's so great, you know. Called to Crete. You want to talk about going to a difficult place? How are Cretans described in the text, right? They're immoral. They're liars. They're deceivers. Uh, I was preaching on this text uh, recently, and I just said, uh, you go to the island of Crete, what you're thinking about, these were pirates. I mean, people who had no morals, no ethics, right? Could you imagine being sent to an island of pirates and try to, uh, your task is to make elders out of them? Aren't you thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit that transforms us uh, with the truth? And Titus was effective, of course, uh, uh, in doing that. Um, so indigenization is the right thing, okay? We must invest in training national leaders. The problem is uh, we need to, to put the right things into their lives, okay? And this is the loving stewardship that we have uh, to bring the truth to bear uh, in their lives. So indigenization is, is really something that almost every mission agency today will talk about uh, and will emphasize. Uh, it's just there's some pros and cons with it. If it's not done well, it can create real damage. Okay, um, And this isn't in my notes. It's not one of the, the points here. But uh, as you get involved in financial support with national leaders, there's some real uh, risks and threats with that. Um, you want to be generous. Um, and, and and I can't even, uh, I don't want to generalize, uh, because every circumstance is different, but it requires real wisdom to come alongside national leaders and invest in them and to support them. Um, but if, if you just throw money, uh, with no real relationship and discernment about who they are and what they're doing, it actually can position them, uh, in a really unhealthy way. And, uh, And so you want to be really thoughtful and careful uh, about where you invest your resources, even though your focus might be investing in national leaders. The third thing, and this really is a a big issue in missions today, I'm sure all of you have heard about contextualization. Uh, Let's look at the screen first of all, and then we'll unpack it. As with the previous principle, there are pros and cons to this trend. A positive expression of contextualization is an accurate Bible translation into a local language. That's a good thing, right? That's a great thing uh, to make sure that they have the word of God in their heart language, okay? Uh, That's a good example uh, of contextualization that is appropriate. A negative expression is the elevation of culture as the authority over the scriptures, which then leads to serious error. And it's this that I refer to as hyper-contextualization, hyper-contextualization. Basically, you've got a a spectrum, and we're trying to figure out how to minister cross-culturally, and you want to be effective, and you want to apply truth in that context. The two ends of the spectrum have to do with the issue of authority. On one end, you have the culture, and the other end, you have the scriptures. Okay. As you move on this spectrum, you can find yourself at a place where you've elevated the culture as the ultimate authority at the expense of accuracy with the scripture and its principles. And this accommodation to culture has led to some of the most tragic uh, realities and missions today. And I'm gonna give you a few examples of those. One of them that I do wanna highlight is the insider movement. The insider movement among those doing Muslim evangelism or some of you who are familiar with this uh, strategy or this concept, would recognize the C1 to C6 model. If you're not familiar with it, I just want to uh, explain it to you for a moment. In um, 1998, an article was written in the Evangelical Missions Quarterly by someone named John Travis, who ministered in the Muslim world. And that's not his real name. It's, It's known that that was a pseudonym. But he came up with what uh, he termed the C1 to C6 uh, spectrum of doing Muslim evangelism. And I want to read it to you. And this is the original C1 to C6, okay? First of all, C1 is this. This is what Travis writes. Missionaries establish a church that is basically identical to wherever they are from. So if you're from Kansas, you're going to try to replicate your church experience (laughs) maybe in uh, Saudi Arabia or Iran or wherever the Lord might lead you, okay? In this case, services are conducted in the, the language of the missionaries. They call themselves Christians and have very little cultural connection to the region where they plant the church, okay? And this was true for many of us in missions is we simply tried to imitate or create mirror images of what we did in the US without any consideration to the culture. In this case, they never even tried to to preach in the local language. They did everything in English. Okay, so that's way down here. C1 is on that end of the spectrum. Absolutely no consideration for the culture. This is what we're gonna do, and everybody has to just, uh, from the culture, adapt to our ways. All right. C2 is the same as C1, except the services are conducted in the language of the region. Okay, so a little bit more uh, accommodation, and we're actually using the local language. <coughs> C3, okay, as we move, is they have incorporated many non-religious cultural forms of the region into their community, such as dress, art, et cetera. So a lot of the aesthetics of the culture, a lot of the externals, uh, they begin to uh, include or or accept within body life, okay? That may or may not be wrong, okay? Um And I'll try to come back and explain to you uh, how to think about that. But in this case, uh, they begin to accept some of those forms within the context of the church. Now, they still reject any purely Islamic religious elements. They may meet in a traditional church building or in a more religiously neutral location. They call themselves Christians, but try to have a more contextualized presence in the region. All right, C4. They are similar to C3, but they incorporate some Islamic religious elements into their community, like avoiding pork, praying in a more Islamic style, using Islamic dress, and employing Islamic terminology. They call themselves follower of Isa or something similar. Their meetings are usually not held in traditional church buildings, and they are not considered to be Muslims by the Muslim community. So you see we're moving a little bit more accommodation and identification with Islam. All right, C5. They retain their legal and social identity within their Muslim community. They reject or reinterpret any part of Islamic practices and doctrine that contradict the Bible, so as far as their own beliefs. They may or may not attend the mosque regularly, and they actively are involved in sharing their faith in Jesus with other Muslims. They may call themselves Muslims who follow Esau or just Muslims. They may be viewed by their community as Muslims that are, are, are a little unorthodox. Okay. We've moved now considerably. And then C6, okay, the other end. They keep their faith secret because of an extreme threat of persecution, suffering, or legal retaliation. They may worship secretly in small groups. They do not normally share their faith openly and have a 100% Muslim identity, okay? So that's C1 to C6, according to John Travis in 1997. And all Travis was trying to do was, was, he wasn't advocating any one of those. At the time, he was actually just trying to name what was happening in the missions community by way of strategies to engage Muslims, all right? Now, if you look at that, I think some of that it uh, makes a lot of sense. I would go in and, and teach in the local language. I don't have an issue with that. I actually don't really care if you're wearing certain forms of, of dress. Okay. Uh, matter of fact, when we go into a foreign culture, what we have to do is we ask have to ask a set of questions. What within this culture is consistent with the divine? What is consistent with the satanic? And then what are the kinds of things that of themselves are just amoral? Um. Food, for instance, would fall into that category. A banana here is a banana there. It's not spiritual. But now you take that banana and you lay it on a God shelf as an offering. The use of that banana, let be very simple here, the way that that's used can be used in a sinful way. Okay? And that could be true of dress or whatever else. So when we get into this area, we have to be careful. Um, but there's actually a lot more liberty when it comes to some of those amoral issues with regard to uh, what you do. And it doesn't mean that you're, in this case, a follower of Muhammad uh, just because you, you eat uh, Turkish food, okay? So these are the kinds of things you have to discern as you get, go into cross-cultural uh, ministry. But the concern is now, that was 1998, now it's 2016. And this mentality of hyper-contextualization where if we're going to win people to Christ, we have got to accommodate as much as possible to the culture. Now the culture becomes the authority. And there are annual conferences today with uh, missionaries, hundreds of missionaries, who get together to debate where they fall on the spectrum. But the reality is even the the forms on the end, the C4, C5, and C6, where maybe even 20 years ago, there wasn't as much accommodation doctrinally. Now we're seeing a considerable amount of accommodation where there's absolutely no distinction between uh, Muslim background believers is what we call them who are living as Muslims, you know? Uh, And so I want to read something to you. This comes um, from a gentleman, uh, a pastor actually, and missionary uh, whose last name is Strand. And he speaks specifically uh, to this issue, uh, particularly the C5 uh, aspect. Listen to what he says. C5 contextualization, I believe, always crosses the line because even in its best implementations, it still rejects Christian ecclesiology. What they're saying here is stay in the mosque, keep going to prayers, keep doing everything just like a Muslim, and try to win people within the mosque to follow Christ. Okay? So he says this rejects Christian ecclesiology How does one worship in the Islamic mosque under the leadership and spiritual authority of Islamic imams? How does one recite the Islamic prayers in the shahada, even if one says they have given it new meaning? See, what they do is they use the same terms, but in their mind, uh, they'll say, I'm thinking about biblical truth, or or, I'm using those external forms, but I understand the correct biblical thinking. Well, really. Really. So he says, how does one recite the Islamic prayers and the Shahada as an expression of true worship? How can one have true fellowship in a community composed of a majority that reject the lordship of Jesus? And most C5 groups go even further, i.e. they give prominence to the Quran as God inspired scripture and Muhammad as a true prophet of God. While some of the Western proponents of the insider movement stop short of declaring these doctrines to be true, they often leave the door open by simply asking questions like, Is the Quran God's word? And is Muhammad a true prophet of God? And then declaring that one must answer these questions for themselves. See, that's the subtle danger. There's no conviction. There's no definitive response to asking those questions. This has become common practice and acceptable practice, even among some conservative uh, mission societies. Now, my dear friends, you got a beloved couple in your church who want to go to the mission field, and they have a heart to reach Muslims with the gospel. And you know, have no idea this is going on. And you find out, well, what mission agency is working uh, in Muslim context? Okay. And you try to ask some questions. They might even post their doctrinal statement up there. Only to send these people out and find that they're part of a team where people are all over the spectrum. Okay, That's my concern. Okay. That's why we've got to step up. We've got to really raise our level uh, of understanding of what's going on. matter of fact, we need more leaders in in missiology and the missions movement. We need more people at the table who are willing to take a stance for the truth. But um, these are the things that have begun to creep in uh, at the leadership level. A lot of this has come out of really uh, uh, the shift within uh, the graduate degrees in missiology today. Uh, What you've seen is an an acceptance of sociology, uh, pragmatic methodology, and almost no theology in these missions programs. And then that's what these guys uh, graduate with their degrees, uh, their wives do, uh, and then they end up in positions of leadership of their missions, organizations, and things like that. So uh, you need to be aware of this. And my point is, are you going to be able to change all that? No. But your first responsibility is is those missionaries that you're sending out. Okay? Um, You need to equip them. And you need to help them be discerning in asking good questions before they commit their life and and, and commit themselves to serve uh, under the authority of these kinds of, of organizations. All right. Another expression... Uh, of contextualization, and I alluded to earlier, is Bible translation. And um, there's a great need for Bible translation. We've actually numbered the number of known languages in the world that have no translation, uh, don't have a portion, don't have a New Testament. And uh, the Bible translation mission agencies know those numbers, and they've targeted those groups, and they're trying to identify missionaries to go out and, and work among them. But what I want you to understand is there's debates today uh, with regard to philosophy of translation. So let me illustrate this way. There are debates related to English translations, right? We're familiar to those, okay? Living Bible, ESV, uh, NIV, you know, the philosophies that inform those translations, ESV. And they're familiar to most uh, with regard to the idea of formal or dynamic equivalency and where it's adopted, However, there are additional complications and debates which occur when translating from the English to the local dialect of a national people. I didn't know this uh, for many years until it was explained to me that in most situations where Bible translation is occurring, um, what they're doing is they're simply taking an English translation and translating from that into the language that they've alliterated. And I commend the missionaries who've gone into those tribes. They've, they've invested the time to try to take an oral language and to actually uh, break it down phonetically, create an alphabet, and begin to write uh, a dictionary for that language. That's noble work. That's good work. It's necessary work. Okay? So I'm not criticizing them. But then those same dear people, only trained in the area of linguistics, are asked then to actually translate the scriptures beginning with the English translation into that language that they documented, okay? I didn't understand that most Bible translations have never been trained in doctrine or biblical languages. And I thought to myself, I wouldn't want to spend 25 years of my life in a tribe not knowing biblical languages, trying to translate the scriptures effectively and accurately. Now, the way that this is dealt with is uh, these mission agencies have review panels or review committees. So when those translations are done or portions, they're sent up to people who do have training and that's supposed to be the check and balance in the process. But can't we do better? Can't we train people to be on the front lines who actually know how to accurately interpret and translate uh, from the original languages uh, and get it right the first time? Um, and so I think there's tremendous opportunity for those of us who are committed to, to effective uh, theological education uh, to play a role here. Uh, Paul alluded to this earlier this morning when we talked about Bible translations. There's a lot of translations out there that, that they don't need to necessarily all be uh, redone from scratch, okay? But our trained men, like we experience in the classroom, they see the deficiencies in those translations because we're working through the text. And we're making notations on that. And we like to be a part uh, of an effort to to actually help revise those translations. So that's existing translations, to revise them so they're more accurate. And then we want to encourage a movement of people who are theologically trained to actually be involved in translation work um, on the field. Now, that's one thing. This gets more dynamic because if you embrace hyper-contextualization, and you uh, embrace only dynamic equivalency, uh, which actually, let me define my terms, okay? I don't want to assume anything, but let me tell you what formal equivalency is. These are translations who attempt to reproduce the Greek and Hebrew as exactly as possible into English or the known language. Words, figures of speech, and sometimes even the sentence structure of the original languages are reproduced in a much more limited way in this type of Bible. These are literal translations, okay? When we talk about formal or literal uh, equivalency. These uh, translations hold in varying degrees to a generally word-for-word approach, okay? Now, dynamic equivalency, okay? Okay? These are Bibles or translations that run on a more thought-for-thought philosophy than on the formal equivalent translations, but they do so in a much more sparing manner than paraphrases, okay? They're trying to convey ideas that are consistent with uh, the intent of the author. So Greek and Hebrew figures of speech are replaced with modern, rough equivalents, They are more readable in a sense, though sometimes in a freer translation, some passages become more uh, interpretations than translations, okay? And uh, I was talking to Bill Barrick, who teaches here at the seminary years ago. I actually had him come to a class and and speak on Bible translation. He did this for many years in, in Bangladesh, and he's an Old Testament scholar, and I think he's a great example of what Bible translators should be and what they should do. And and Bill was a lot more objective about this in the sense because sometimes uh, even taking a formal approach, you 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 have to employ a dynamic equivalent. Okay, there just is no mean, but you want to do everything you can uh, to get it as close to the original as possible. Okay, so you can even uh, employ dynamic equivalency uh, in a very uh, careful careful manner. Okay, now let me read this to you but there are translations which are aberrational or have aberrations. These are translations done independently, sometimes by a smaller religious sect. Usually they will translate scripture by twisting it to fit their theologies rather than conforming their theologies to the scriptures. And these groups often have a person or organization which is practically considered equal in authority with the Bible. What are we saying here? There are translations being done where, again, that spectrum culture or the authority of Scripture, which has the authority, where the culture, okay, and even aberrant theologies within the culture become the dominant uh, emphasis in the translation, okay? So we have a lot of concerns uh, in this regard. Well, let me ask you, as a missions pastor or an elder or just someone who cares, you got somebody at a church who wants to go into Bible translation work. Do you even know what the questions are that should guide them in selecting a mission agency with regard to their philosophy of translation? Now, there's some wonderful agencies. I'll mention several, the Wycliffe's and the New Tribes and the Pioneers and so forth, uh, who've had a long history of being faithful here. But again, as leadership changes and these influences of missiology come in, you begin to see mm, equivocation and toleration. And so you could find yourself part of an organization or even on part of a missionary translation team where there's not agreement on the philosophy of translation. Okay. Um, one of the other things that we see in translation today is uh, this, this pragmatism of, listen, in our lifetime, we can get uh, every known language, uh, a translation of the scriptures. So we're going to rush in and do this as quickly as possible. That often leads to the same kind of accommodation. We're just going to get out there, and and we're not going to do good, thorough translations. We're just going to get the translation out there. So this kind of American thinking uh, is problematic for us by way of our stewardship of the truth. And we can train men to preach, which we do. But if you've got a congregation that has an inadequate translation, can they ever become Bereans? that's what we're called to be and so that's why we're committed in the future to make an investment even in Bible translation okay this is part of strengthening the church now also what happens is if you don't get people a translation that they can trust so they can become Bereans. Where does the issue of authority reside in that church? What happens is the issue of authority resides in the man behind the pulpit. Now, if he's trained and he's faithful, okay. But you want the authority transferred from a man to the scriptures, okay? And that's why you've got to give them a sound translation so that even a good trained man has the accountability of a congregation who can check him. And their loyalty is to the Scriptures, not to the man. Now, this is particularly true in developing cultures or like in Africa. Last year, um, we shared right before Shepherds Conference uh, a book uh, that we facilitate on implications of inerrancy for the global church. In fact, we have copies, I think, somewhere in the back of the room. If you didn't get one, we can give that to you before you leave. But there's a great chapter in there by um, Dave Beakley, who oversees our training center in South Africa. And Dave's point in that entire chapter was this issue of authority. And what Dave says is in an African culture, okay, more of a tribal culture working in the black uh, uh, culture and environment, authority, particularly in oral cultures, always is passed down by the tribal leader. That's the issue of authority. So even if that man is trained, everybody is still looking to that man as the authority. Okay. Now he has authority in the sense of shepherding the flock and so forth, but I mean the the ultimate authority with regard to the truth. Okay, and so here again we have to understand these cultural dynamics and make sure that we're equipping the congregation to find their loyalty to the Scriptures. Okay? But what happens particularly when we train a guy and then he goes into church and everybody's sitting there with their uh, inferior translation? And he has to keep correcting it over and over again. How much confidence do those people have? So we have some work ahead of us. We need Bible translators is my argument, okay? But we need theologically trained Bible translators, and we need to be a part of a movement uh, to uh, overcome some of these these tendencies today. All right, let's keep going. I want to talk to you about the idea or trend of post-colonialism. Anybody hear this term? ever heard of post-colonialism? Okay, it's become very popular. Someone termed it pre-Constantinianism, okay? That's harder to say. (laughs) Uh, But going back before Constantine, of course, uh, the idea of, um, uh, you know, er, the state is, exactly, the state is Christian uh, because you're baptized in the church and so forth. We won't get too far into that. But this idea of post-colonialism, in one sense, there are some pros okay? A rejection of non-biblical authorities, that's a good thing. Because during colonization, there were a lot of things that were exported overseas that weren't biblical, okay? So to the extent that's what they're assessing, that's a good thing. A rejection of extra-biblical mandates, there's a lot of early missionaries movement that could be characterized by legalism, okay? And so we got to help the church overcome some of those kinds of of tendencies if they're rooted in their missionary tradition. A rejection of reliance on tradition versus scripture, okay? That's a good thing. Just because that's what the missionary said or we've always done it this way, that's not a good rationale. Is it biblical? That's the question. Or a rejection of overemphasis on Western practice versus biblical principles, (laughs) And I think early on, as we saw, even on that C1 to C6 model, there were missionary efforts who just simply tried to replicate Western culture. And that was so integrated with their church culture, there was no distinction made between those two things. Okay. And to the extent that that Western practice wasn't biblical, then that's not helpful to the church. Okay. Some of the cons, though, of this pushback uh, of colonialism is this. There's a real, real strong wave today of rejecting all Western missionaries. Now, I guess if they're bad missionaries or um, their philosophy is not biblically sound, I guess that's okay. But but what I'm really referring to here is the idea of anything that is associated with the Western church, okay, or it's missionaries, then we want to reject that. We want to do our own thing. It, it, it can lead to a Um, hyper-nationalism, okay? So you've got one extreme uh, in some places with regard to colonialism and some errors, and now you've got an overreaction in some cases. So you're a Western missionary, you know, and, and you're made to feel, well, you have no place with regard to serving the church around the world. All right, there's also a rejection of historic missionary practices and teachings. And to the extent that these practices and teachings were sound, that's a problem for us. Again, overemphasis on nationalism at the expense of truth, okay? Uh, And then a vulnerability (laughs) to error or heresy. Let me illustrate this a couple ways. A few years ago, uh, I was handed a copy of the African Study Bible. Some of you may have seen it. There's some really good articles, okay? There's some really bad articles also, okay? There's an article in there on the role of women, completely feminist argumentation. But the authors of the African Study Bible, whose priority was contextualization, said, we want to look for national theologians to compose the article so this is an African Study Bible. Well, the problem is if you've already tolerated accommodation on truth, and for the sake of having something that's just African, then you accept these deviant or unbiblical views on certain things, but because they're African leaders, then it's okay. And uh, we're beginning to see a proliferation of theology books and and um, uh, Christian books being published uh, in the developing world that um, you've got people who are untrained or not trained uh, in a sound hermeneutic, and therefore what they're advocating is not biblically sound. And uh, it's a sensitive issue, Okay. Uh, I, I'm a big advocate of being very respectful to the nationals, but not at the expense of truth. And so uh, for many of us who are Westerners going into cross-cultural ministry, this is a real area uh, that requires wisdom uh, to move into. And I just want to warn you, you're going to experience some places this kind of, of pushback or this reaction. Okay. One of the other areas that we see this uh, particular trend uh, manifested is what I term uh, in others vernacular theologies. Some might call it non Western theologies, national theologies, whatever that might be. And these are these books I'm referring to. So, my note here whether termed vernacular, national, or global theologies, a strong and growing work in missions is the authoring of theological resources by national church leaders. We need that. Okay? God's church is not just the Western church. And so we need national church leaders to, to find their voice and, and speak the truth and not only in their pulpits, but in their publishing ministry, writings, blogs, everything else. So this is a good thing. Okay. And we encourage this, certainly with our faculty and graduates at TMEI. Okay. But again, uh, the core issue here uh, really comes down to the issue of hermeneutics. And if you've got people who weren't trained, to interpret the Scriptures according to a sound hermeneutic, they're going to come with all kinds of conclusions. And if they've got this influence of elevating the culture over the Scriptures already, then they're going to come up with some really uh, erroneous uh, interpretations. And so we're seeing these vernacular theologies uh, really pick up pace. And uh, this is one of the reasons that that, uh, we're strong advocates of getting our people who are trained of publishing uh, in their own national languages and recognize as national theologians uh, to kind of stem the tide. Number seven, uh, the reality of false gospels. That's not necessarily a, a new trend, but some of the expressions of false gospels uh, that we're seeing right now, such as liberation theology, this really became dominant in the late 70s, early 80s in Latin and South America. Uh, liberation theology you may be familiar with, but basically it reinterprets the scripture to look at all of of the issues with regard to the poor and redefines the gospel in political terms. And in so doing, the church becomes mobilized as revolutionaries to overthrow unjust or unjust political systems. And uh, this has been embraced within Catholicism throughout uh, Latin and South America. Uh, This has migrated to Africa Uh, and it's migrated back to the U.S. into urban centers, Uh, um, uh, particularly within churches where the pastors, uh, mostly African-American pastors, not only who go to liberal seminaries, uh, mainline denominational seminaries who stayed in the city and continue to work uh, in those environments, uh, have been advocating liberation theology right in our own backyard. So we need to understand that, because uh, if you're going to go into those environments, We need to equip people to uh, uh, defend that uh, and defend the truth against these kinds of of heresies. Prosperity gospel, I don't need to say too much. We've talked a lot about that. And uh, John certainly uh, has addressed that issue uh, in his writing and preaching ministry. um, And that affiliated with the charismatic movement or the signs and wonders movement. Uh, you know, I, I describe the prosperity gospel, the signs and wonders movement, as theological injustice. Uh, if you study the scriptures, there's a, God has a lot to say about justice and injustice. And the way injustice is defined is by people who are in positions of authority who use their position of authority to exploit those under their rule for personal benefit. And God condemns that. Okay? And Christ models just the opposite, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 20, what does he say to. Um, the request uh, uh, by James and John's mother to sit at the right and left hand, right, in the kingdom. He says, uh, just a minute. <laughs> Let me explain to you what the values of my kingdom are, okay? Uh, first of all, those aren't uh, my positions to give away. Second of all, uh, leadership in the kingdom of God is about service, humbling yourself, expending yourself for the good of others, not elevating yourself to exploit others under your care. So when you look at really the Ponzi scheme of the prosperity gospel, that's all it is, is uh, it's the person at the top of the pyramid, okay, who's exploiting the poorest of the poor so that he can fill his pockets with their gifts and contributions. And the reason I say it's, it's theological injustice is the framework of the prosperity gospel is this. It's all conditioned on faith. And so you name it and claim it, and if you have enough true faith, then God's going to provide that for you. Okay. But we say that same thing when we talk about the gospel. If you have genuine faith right, and repent, Christ is going to become your Savior. He's going to forgive you. So what happens to the person who named and claimed it and never got what they claimed? They can only draw one conclusion. I don't have genuine faith. Therefore, I must not have genuine faith that leads to salvation. This is exploitation of people for profit. And it's not just exploiting them by way of stealing money out of their pockets. It's stealing their hope and stealing their faith. And it's just swept as a blight throughout the developing world because it is particularly appealing to the poorest of the poor. Matter of fact, the charismatic movement itself appeals to the poorest of the poor. My dad taught me this. He used to teach apologetics. And he said this, the reason the charismatic movement is so attractive among uh, impoverished communities, it might be in an urban context here or overseas, is because they're drawn, they're people in crisis, okay? Uh, Whatever the hardships that they're experiencing uh, leads to an emotional crisis, you know, they're traumatized. And so they come into the charismatic movement and the hyper-emotionalism that they experience there is a contrast to their despair. And that's why this appeals to them, and because there's very little, if any, kind of biblical teaching in this movement, they don't have an alternative to that. Okay, time and time again, I've seen people who are caught up in the charismatic movement, who they want to love Christ, they want to know Christ, they've never been taught or trained. And if and if you can bring them to the Scriptures and begin to teach them, time and time again, uh, personally I've experienced those who have. Uh, come around to accept the truth. And so um, we need to be more purposeful uh, in engaging these false gospels. Now, historically speaking, when we talk about false gospels, you think of major world religions, don't you? Okay, Buddhism, Hinduism, you want to talk about false gospels, okay, Islam, Catholicism. But here's the other thing that's happened, uh, even as these faiths are out there and Catholic missions and the Western missions have come in, uh, again, if people don't have theological discernment, biblical discernment, if they're not trained and discipled, this is great commission uh, stuff, then what happens is they tend to blend their folk religion or the dominant world religion with a little bit of Christianity. Now this is true within Catholicism uh, even as well. You've got animism uh, in more remote areas uh, of Catholic nations being, being wed with Catholicism. It's not exclusive to Christianity. And so... A lot of times in the missions movement, we we move into an environment, we preach a simplistic gospel, we do not disciple the church in the truth, and we roll on to the next thing, and to the next thing, and the next thing, and we just put a chalk mark on the wall and we say, see, there's another church or there's another convert. The fact is there's still worldview issues. There's still beliefs in their heart that they haven't edited out. They They haven't surrendered to the truth. And sometimes even in their external forms, they'll adopt the forms of Christianity in the church, but still internally they're thinking according to those, um, those false gospels. And so this is, this is the work of the church, is to come alongside and to carefully and faithfully bring people under the word of God and begin to identify, maybe they'll even profess back to you something that sounds true. But if you live among them and with you, you begin to see that their practice isn't consistent with their profession, right? That's true for us in our own churches here. Isn't that what we do in discipleship? We, people, we help people see where they still believe lies and where those lies then lead to action, which they always do. Then we have to point to that and say, what is it that you're thinking or believing that's led to this behavior or action? And we need to bring them back to the truth that then will produce the fruit of obedience and righteousness. So there's a lot of work that we have to do with regard to false gospels, but we better not be the ones who make our people or our converts uh, vulnerable to these synchristic uh, forms uh, of religion because we didn't do our job, okay? All right, now, this builds on this. Trend number eight is the church planning movements. Is church planning biblical? I think you've heard that. This week, we agree that's the priority uh, of the scriptures. That's our priority uh, of equipping pastors and national leaders uh, who plant and strengthen the church. Okay, we're all committed to that. But do you know that today uh, there are some advocates of what's referred to as the rapid church planting movement? I heard one uh, story about a man uh, who worked in India who claimed that uh, in the last year he had planted 10,000 churches. Wow. I'd like to jump up and down and say, praise the Lord. I didn't know it was that easy. Again, Paul alluded to this this morning. How do you define a church? How do you define a convert? See, we're changing our definitions so that we can claim victories and pat ourselves on the back, okay? And then we can move on to the next thing. How dare we? How dare we preach a simple gospel and, and call people a church when, when there's no equipped leadership, okay? There's no ability to, to disciple and to teach the people in that church. This is that American pragmatism where we define success as bigger and better. We define it by numbers, okay? And we need to repent of this. Now, there are wonderful church planting movements, Okay. And the reason I mention it here again, if if you're going to raise up people in your church and you have the priority of church planting and you send them out, what philosophy does their mission agency or their team hold to? And by the way, don't be apologetic by asking these questions. Okay, you don't owe the mission agency anything. You owe your people everything. You're the guardian. You're the shepherd of your flock. Okay. And not just them, but the people they're going to go to minister to. And frankly, if the church would get more informed and stand up and start asking these questions, they might actually stem the tide with some of these mission agencies. Your, your job is not just to pass the plate and, uh, and say, I'll pray for you. Come on, roll up your sleeves, get busy, get informed, get engaged, and take this responsibility seriously. And God can use us in our generation uh, to provide uh, a corrective to this. All right, trend number nine. Some of you would recognize this. I just term it the orality movement, okay? Um, Let me read my notes and then comment. An overemphasis or exclusive practice of narrative preaching challenges biblical authority, okay? Instead of seeing a maturation model of bringing people who have no written language to a place of literacy, then biblical literacy, it attempts to contextualize to an extreme, which is needed in an oral-only approach to teaching. And in a context of no-trained church leaders, the risk of faulty teaching is very high. A pre-Reformation reality, but potentially worse. Again, as I said earlier, abandoning the Berean model leaves the church vulnerable to error. Now, what did I just say? Okay. There's a movement right now of going into uh, unreached people groups and, and tribal settings that don't read or write. They have an oral language, okay? And looking for a shortcut. Now, there are some brothers. I'll give it to them. I think they're, they're approaching this in a correct manner, okay? But at large, the orality movement is, again, looking for a pragmatic shortcut. And so instead of investing the time, okay, to get their language uh, translated or, or, or documented, uh, teaching them, uh, to read, and then teaching them the scriptures, we got to cut to the chase, okay? Now, that's, that's not to say there aren't things we should do to immediately teach them in an oral fashion, okay? I'm talking about your long-term commitment to these people, okay? And if you try to cheat it, you're going to fail them. Now, here's what's happening. The orality movement at large, there are some good things trying to solve and address this issue bringing the truth to bear in that culture. Uh, Uh, in a more direct fashion. But what's happening back here is many of us have embraced, or not us, but within the Western church, have embraced um, this idea of narrative preaching, storytelling as preaching. And it's particularly this trend mapping onto the orality movement that I'm trying to raise awareness of. So you're well-intentioned to go into an oral culture and bring biblical truth to bear in them, and you're trying to find meaning way, meaningful ways to do that, um, uh, to teach them, okay, orally, okay, that's important to do. And then also eventually teach them to read and, and teach them to read the scriptures and, and so forth, okay, that's good. But this idea of narrative preaching, okay. and there are narrative passages in scripture, you understand why there's different genres, but what I'm talking about narrative preaching is this idea that people will not tolerate expositional preaching. So what we need to do is we need to tell more stories. And so the authority becomes in the power of the man to persuade by his illustration or his story whatever principle that he's teaching. It's these folks who are getting involved in the orality movement who then are, are skipping all the way over and say, we don't need to train people. We just need to take this narrative approach of storytelling. This is such a gross disservice to those dear people. When will they become biblically literate? And frankly, I don't really care about your story. I want to know what God has to say, okay? I don't care how winsome you are, how creative you are, how clever you are in your illustration. Illustrations have their place, right? Right? Christ used parables, okay? You can make an argument that there's a need to illustrate things. But we're way down here on this extreme because again, we're looking for the cleverest and most pragmatic solutions, okay? And when you reject the hard work of becoming a student of God's word and you're looking for shortcuts because you're what? Trying to accommodate the lowest level of interest. And that's what we've seen in the whole seeker-sensitive church movement is just let's dumb everything down so we don't scare people out of the church. My friends, listen, I'm going to say it for all of us. Christ's call to be a disciple began with the invitation to take up your cross and to die. Why why dare we not present the full gospel and the invitation to follow Christ to the people that, that we're trying to evangelize? Count the cost. Count the cost. By the way, I, we were talking about the C1, C6 movement, the insider movement. You know what most genuine Muslim background believers say about Western missionaries who advocate the extreme forms of this? You know what's governing them? To justify this is fear. And they have no respect for these missionaries because they understand, they read the scriptures. To follow Christ means I need to be willing to risk my life. Don't tell me something different. And it may very well take my life But that that brings me into an authentic relationship with Christ, that willingness to come in. And they watch all these Western missionaries parading with all these accommodations. They say, listen, you're just afraid. You're just afraid. And I think they're right, okay? Because comfort has become the idol of the Western culture, and that's crept into our thinking and missions. Okay, got a little animated about that, but I'll move on. All right, Uh, trend number 10 is the social justice Uh, trend. Now, for many years, I've been studying and trying to speak to this issue of mercy ministry and social justice, okay? And you can go back and do a historic analysis, and I will argue that you'll find always in the church, uh, the biblical church, there was a commitment to care for the poor in their midst. James is pretty clear about that, right? And many other texts uh, to care for the poor. And it has a lot to do with our evidence of sanctification and 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 Godlike love that we demonstrate towards one another—that is a big part of our testimony to the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. That's what the Book of First John illustrates. Okay. But uh, you may know enough about the social gospel movement. Around the 1900s, a guy named Walter Rauschenbusch authored a book from which we derive uh, the term uh, "social gospel," and he was educated at Rochester Theological Seminary which have been grossly uh, and greatly informed by uh, German rationalism and skepticism, which um, attacked uh, a view of inerrancy. He ministered in the uh, Hell's Kitchen area of Manhattan or New York City. It's kind of the area where uh, Madison Square Gardens is, that general proximity of Manhattan. It was the poorest, uh, of the poorest neighborhoods. And um, he embraced what was popular at that time of uh, post-millennialism okay? This was before World War One, and so the world hadn't turned that devastating tide leading to World War II, the Depression, all those other kinds of things. You had a lot of um, very optimistic uh, developments in uh, civilization with regard to industrialization, time-saving devices, the car, uh, all kinds of things. And so there was an optimism that crept into uh, theological ranks. And this Optimism, the social optimism, took precedent uh, over uh, what the scriptures taught because uh, German skepticism had eroded the confidence in the scriptures. Okay, so Rauschenbusch comes into prominence at this point, and he's just trying to articulate an argument as to why we should be involved in ministry among the poor. Sadly, his argument was basically uh, the idea of post millennialism that we can somehow redeem culture or redeem society. (coughs) And usher in the kingdom, or whatever definition he gave to it. Well, we're seeing a resurgence of an interest in mercy ministry. Much of it is good. But I'm very, very concerned about this uh, young uh, evangelical, um, young evangelicals engaged in this whole movement of social justice because they don't have the biblical, theological, or historical grid to discern. And they quote a couple verses, and they're off and running with their life's work to end world hunger. Now, is ending world hunger a noble endeavor? You bet. Is that even a loving thing to do if people are starving? Yeah, absolutely. I can make those arguments. But it doesn't save anybody from hell, right? So the issue is, if you're going to go out there and use your skill set, whatever it is, to try to feed people, um, you better be primarily concerned with the state of their soul because the Scriptures tell us that the kingdom of God is where? It's in the hearts of men, okay? So we have to be very careful how we define kingdom. And if you don't have an accurate definition of kingdom, then you're going to tolerate certain trends in in missions work and missions movement, okay? So we need to help these young people, particularly in our church, understand that that if they have a heart for the poor and a concern to work with orphans and, and all of that, that the primary responsibility they have is to bring to bear the gospel, and a lot of these movements uh, also are not uh, focused on the local church. I remember uh, my wife and I have three adopted kids. And uh, two of my kids are from Uganda. And, and we got them from a wonderful, loving Christian orphanage. But I remember showing up the first week, uh, made several trips there. And the first week I said, well, where does everybody go to church? I want to go to church on Sunday. Well, we visited that church or we've been to that church. And what I found out is none of the staff, these American missionaries, went to church. I thought, oh, okay. Well, I walked down the street, found a great Baptist church, Nile Baptist Church, uh, and, who was doing a wonderful work there. And uh, we developed a relationship over the years, and I would go back and visit, and would go out with them to the slums, and they were working with Compassion International. They were doing a lot of good things, and they are biblically sound. But I was so disappointed that all these American missionaries... Uh, weren't committed to the church, okay? And so, again, today we have a lot of evangelicals out doing a lot of good things, but the gospel is not the priority, the church is not the priority, and and eventually they're going to wake up after 20, 25 years of doing a whole bunch of good things and realize they have very little eternal impact. We can do better than that, okay? So um, you need to understand that the definition of the kingdom is very important, but most young evangelicals are not conversant in these theological issues. Okay, so eschatology is very important. And interesting enough, and you know what I'm talking about, in broader circles, a lot of times eschatology is diminished with regard to its importance. I disagree with that. It's very important. It's very, theology has practical implications always. You have implications not only on your soteriology, on your ecclesiology. Okay? And we have to be faithful uh, in accurately interpreting uh, uh, the end times and and our view of the kingdom. Now I'm sure I just stirred up a little bit of uh, an interest on that topic. But I want to step back just a little bit. uh, And what I've tried to do is just illustrate some of these trends in modern missions. And um, if your elders aren't talking about some of these issues, if your missions committee isn't talking about some of these issues, then it's time to just apply yourself. Uh, we're going to do our best on our website, TMAI, to begin to list uh, uh, more and more resources. As a matter of fact, we're uh, under development with a new blog on uh, issues and missions, just for the sake of, of sharing with you men uh, critical issues that we can think about and, and look at from a biblical perspective. If you weren't able to join us on Tuesday, uh, we did um, distribute uh, a very basic manual that helps you go back to your church and evaluate your missions programs. Uh, you know, my way in here, I have to tell you, I was talking to a brother and went to visit his church uh, this last year, and he's in the throes of transitioning in his church with his missions pastor. Guy's been there 30 years. And, and he's accommodating a number of these things. And this pastor's trying to faithfully work with them to teach him to train, but they're really button heads. So I'm going to tell you, this may not be an easy thing. There's a lot of sacred cows in your missions program because somebody knows somebody that you've been supporting. Uh, So this going to have to require real um, wisdom, uh, real faithfulness, real love, okay? Um, But you can't neglect your responsibility. matter of fact, when I travel around and talk to guys, they knew they were going to go into a church and may have to deal with the issue of church polity, elder rule, and so forth, okay? Uh, They knew they were going to have to deal with some other issues of doctrine and maybe counseling in their church. But very few of them anticipate they have to take on their missions program. And many of them have confessed to me, I don't really feel adequate. I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do. So if we can serve you, that's our desire. Uh, we'd be glad to, to do our very best to give you some tools. Uh, I believe we have copies. Do we have copies of that manual that we had? Okay. All right. We have some literature from TMAI and and some books and stuff. And if we don't have it, thank you, brother. Um, that's what it looks like. Um, hey, by the way, uh, and I'm not here to do a commercial. It's between you and the Lord. If you guys want to get involved in supporting TMAI, we need you. But we want to serve you. We really do want to serve you by getting more good content and resources out there. So if you're not signed up to our regular communications, uh, or if you haven't been to our website, just go there. Sign up to get um, our updates and our emails. Join us in this Reformation movement and missions. If we can serve you, Uh, myself or others uh, who are part of our team are glad to come and be a part of a missions conference or meet with your missions committee. Uh, That is just simply our desire to serve. And uh, I wanted you to know that uh, that's our desire. I want to mention a couple things coming up. Um, Next year, uh, the day before Shepherds Conference, we'll be hosting another international symposium, an all-day event. Uh, That we'll be bringing together all of our international guests, and we'll have an international lineup of speakers. Our subject matter there is going to be tackling uh, uh, Christology and Soteriology. We tackled Bibliology and Inerrancy last year. We're going to tackle these two issues to really get the true gospel. So uh, we'll be writing another book with our faculty, and we'll have a great lineup of speakers on that subject, looking at these theological issues uh, in the context of missions. So you can look forward to that. The other thing, if you'd really like to connect uh, with our training centers, let me just mention our ambassadors again. Uh, Jonathan's in the back, Fally's in the back. They head up our ambassador programs. Uh, Anything we have, it's yours. Any way we can serve, uh, we want to do that. But if you want to get involved in supporting a training center ministry, talk to these guys. Uh, Look, we're not salesmen. We're not here to... Paul did that this morning. I don't need to do that. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, but we want a partnership or relationship to help you be effective uh, in your role as as leading uh, your missions endeavor so that 's my pitch at the end. Let me take some questions and do my best to try to answer them yes sir yeah, good question where 's the role of women in missions and single women? Yeah, exactly. We have a lot of women in missions, yes already, but single women okay, good question. Um, First of all, we understand that single women are part of the body of Christ. They're gifted, okay? God has a contribution for them to make. So we need to be very respectful. When it comes to the issue of roles, we're real clear. We know what those are. They're not to preach and teach and right, uh, and fill those roles of leadership. So what you want to do is ask the question, can and how does a single missionary fit into uh, a missionary team or the ministry uh, of establishing and strengthening a church? Uh, there are all kinds of places that women have opportunities for uh, sharing the gospel that men would not have. Okay? So in looking at some of your missionary efforts in context, maybe where there are Muslim women or things like that as an example, they would actually be better positioned to be part of your evangelistic effort there. Um, there are other skill sets. Many of them are, are gifted in, in teaching uh, children, uh, teaching English, these kinds of things. Uh, the way we look at it at Grace Church, uh obviously our primary commitment because of the need is to invest in getting trained men to train other men uh to the mission field but where there's a need maybe administratively or in some of these other capacities at the request of the missionary leader and the team we'll consider allowing a single woman to go okay and to be a part of that that team it generally is for a short term period of time to meet a specific need um my bigger issue is, as you think about this, is the issue of submission to authority. And it's not so much that she's going to be tempted to not be submissive, but the flip side of that is loving leadership, is you have to, you have to protect and care for those women that God's entrusted to you. And so I want to see, if there's single women who find their way to the mission field, I want to see them in safe, loving, supported environments, not out there on their own. Now, if you study the history of missions, you can't argue that God's used women, okay? Was it best or not? You can have that debate. In many places, women have been the backbone of the missions movement to the shame of the men, okay? But um, what you'd never want to do is violate the biblical, clear biblical principles of the role of women when they come into part of a missionary team, okay? It might become an issue of prioritization by way of what you invest in. And... um, and so, to be honest with you, we don't send a lot of single women, very few, through our church because we've determined this is our priority. Now, in your setting, and, and you've got gals who are coming out of Bible college or Christian colleges mm-hmm. or they have a heart to go and, and work, I would say you need to make sure gospel first, church is the focus. Are they under the authority okay, of headship and, and male leaders? Uh, are they... Are they serving a particular, are they using their gifts in a, in a way that particularly advances the purpose of the church there? If you begin to work through that, then I think you can come to a conclusion of what uh, what is best and what you'll do. Um, so I don't want to just be prescriptive. I, I think you want to always be principled, you know, in that approach. So that's how I begin to think about it. Um, and I get all over the guys. You got 10 gals on the bench ready to go to the mission field and you got no guys? You have a bigger issue. Okay. And a lot of those gals would make great wives if they could find decent men uh, who'd step up, right? Okay, you had your hand up. For a Bible translation in particular, yeah. does TMAI have any personnel or right now? You know what we're doing right now? We have some students and graduates of, of the seminary. Uh, I would direct your attention to what's known as the Bible Translation Foundation, uh, it's a website to try to facilitate engagement on this particular topic, and that is by guys from around here who are having this conversation. We had like a one-day summit. Paul came. Bill Barrett came. Some of our, our guys who are translating came and are part of it. We're trying to reach out. We had a guy from Wycliffe come and sit in. Uh, because, again, we don't want to speak in generalizations, and we want to have influence. So we want to engage them in the conversation to be fa- fair to them and he loved it. He's like, I agree with you, and we need some help internally. So check out the Bible Translation Foundation or Fellowship. i have to get it right. Kyle Davis, great guy who heads that up. And and then he's done some really, he's posted some great articles, and he's done some assessment of uh, translation organizations and things like that. So that will get you started. Good. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. The emerging church movement is the North American expression of hyper-contextualization. Oh, yeah, no doubt about that. It's the same mentality and philosophy. Yes? Are you familiar with the What do you see? To be honest, I'm not as familiar with that. Can you describe it a little bit more? Okay. Yeah, it seems to be a... Self-discovery. Based on what you described, there's certainly some concerns there. Um, the authority for interpreting the Scriptures is not personal experience or just personal preference. So how capable are those people to actually accurately interpret the text without some aid or, or being trained in that? Uh, do we know that the Spirit of God works and illumines the mind with the Word of God? Absolutely. I don't want to ever deny that. But does that mean we should presume? Um, and I think even what you're seeing today, that uh, if you've got those charismatic influences uh, that are coupled with that by way of personal experience, uh, then that's a very dangerous thing uh, if you're coming into that context and trying to do that. So that would be a caution I would have. But I've got my homework assignment. I need to check out. Say it again. Bible discovery? Okay. Well, first of all, I appreciate what you're saying, is don't just be reactive to everything you hear. You want to be fair to people, right? And so that's when you want to do your homework. Um, uh, let me put it this way. Uh, we can talk about resources in a second, but if you're working with key mission agencies, what I've seen many churches over the years is is they sift through. Uh, which ones that they really have confidence in, and, and they cultivate stronger relationships with the leadership of those mission agencies. And and even if there's a, a concern that comes up, they work together in, in addressing that issue and getting accurate information for the sake of their missionary. And so uh, you always want to pursue that kind of relationship. Uh, don't mean be negligent in that. Uh, on, a, on a broader perspective, you know, you can read things like EMQ, the Evangelical Missions Quarterly, or the International Bulletin of Missionary Research, and, and you'll be exposed to all this real fast. EMQ historically has been very conservative. It's, it's begin to include, be more inclusive of these kinds of issues. But that's a great education. Um, there are some really excellent books uh, with regard to doctrine and theology of missions that set the foundation and grid um, and we're posting those on our website. As a matter of fact they're in the back of the manual uh, that we can get to your hands. but there isn't just one place to go you, you've got to begin to find a way to uh, to equip and educate yourself and uh, I think don't hesitate if you have any question then get in touch with the leadership of that organization and hold them accountable to answer that question and if they can't that's going to create some real concerns uh, on your part. Um, and I think train your missionaries not not to be hostile, but to be responsible and ask good questions as well. So that was a general answer to your question. Okay. All right. Maybe one more. Yeah. yeah. Great question. And, and that's part of the tension in this because we don't want to wait forever. We want to get there to do the work. Okay. Oh, yeah, the question was, um, you know, if you're, if you're talking about going to Bible translation work and go on to get further theological education in biblical languages, you know, that's a lot of time and money, which money is another big part of education, which prevents people from getting to the field. So um, what do you do? Do you just keep on? Is that the only uh, thing to do? Uh, I would say this. First of all, most translators are only trained in linguistics, not in theology, Okay. Uh, there's been a shift. It used to be that most missionaries graduated from good Bible colleges and then they go on to get some linguistic training. Okay, that's okay. Uh, now, what we've done is specialization in missions. We have a lot of people who went to Bible college or Christian universities who even studied missions programs, but in their biblical studies department, they had so many of these cultural classes, they didn't have any of the doctrine or theology classes. Okay, so even what they're getting at their Bible colleges isn't robust enough, okay, to aid them in the future, and then they go on for the graduate-level linguistics training, okay? And there's programs like SIL, you know, and so forth that are uh, uh, designed to come alongside the education provide that advanced linguistics training. Okay, that's kind of the context that this question uh, uh, comes to play in. Um, I would say this. It's not that every single person on that translation team has to have a master's in Biblical languages. I'm just saying nobody has one. Okay? And so this is where we partner together. Maybe somebody is stronger in the linguistic side of it, and somebody else has is, is got the training there. And that's why a team approach, uh, I think, is helpful uh, at that point. Yeah? Yeah. No, we're not even there yet, so let me clarify. We're just having a discussion about the need and what should we do moving forward. So uh, this Bible Foundation uh, Translation Foundation is simply just trying to raise the conversation, do some assessment of the current trends in Bible translation work, and then make an argument that we should wed uh, theological education with the Bible translation movement and then look at where we can serve. What I was saying is where we're in a classroom and helping national pastors accurately interpret weak translations in the classroom. Well, you do that year after year after year. We've got a really great body of work there that if we could engage with the translation societies in that area, maybe what we can do is encourage them uh, that we'll be a part of the revision of those translations. We've already done the work exegetically. Now we can come alongside and work with them to reissue updated translations. That's where I think there's uh, a short-term opportunity for us at TMAI to be involved, okay? Because we're not starting from scratch; we're actually doing this every day in the classroom. The bigger issue of the world of Bible translation is going to require more thought about how to equip and train people, and what that's going to require moving forward. My real concern is just uh, that we not get caught up in this idea of of, of pragmatism that that isn't willing to invest the time. It does take 20, 25 years to complete that translation. That may just be the New Testament. But isn't the Word of God worthy of that kind of commitment? And uh, who cares that we can claim, hey, you know, my lifetime, I translated 10 different translations. I, who cares if we've not served the church faithfully? And so I know I'm being a little sarcastic in that, but, but that's how serious the issue may be. And uh, we have we have debates within on mission fields and within uh, mission organizations as to where people fall uh, in their philosophy of translation. We need to help our own people that we're sending out uh, to go into those conversations and make good choices. So thank you for asking the question. Gentlemen, thank you for your attention. I hope you've been benefited. If we can serve you, let us know.